So the, the first um, session is uh, on uh, rights in data, and this is the sort of foundation piece of, of, of this afternoon. Um, and in this session, we'll be looking at the rights in data um, that the law will recognise um, as the perceived value of data and its importance in business generally increases. Um, we'll also be looking at what the court's attitudes to data is and what patents mean for data businesses. Um, and I'm delighted to introduce the speakers um, for this first session on rights in data. Um, joining me at the forefront, um, uh, uh, at the front will be one of my partners, Paul Garland, who heads Kemp Little's IP and litigation team. Um, Paul has uh, some experience, first-hand experience, of a number of complex disputes involving uh, data businesses, particularly at, in the financial services and aviation area. Um, we're also joined on stage by Catherine Roussel, who is a principal legal consult counsel in the markets legal department of Thomson Reuters. Catherine focuses on commercial services um, for the business and is global compliance head for the, market for the markets division. Um, it's great to have Catherine here so we can really get some experience of what's sort of happening out there in the marketplace. So the, the, the sort of overarching theme um, of today is that you can start to think about the various legal aspects of data um, in the context of data law as part of this data-centric world. Um, and we're really looking at the relevant legal areas unified around this theme. Um, and on the slide here is, is a stack that seeks to draw out what seems to us to be the, the key areas of legal interest. At the bottom, um, you've got the software and equipment aspects of the platform infrastructure. Now, they'll be very familiar to all the IT lawyers among us. Um, software starts to shade into, particularly when it comes to databases, more, 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 more data-specific aspects. We're not speaking about the software aspects of data today, but in one of the, uh, 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 in the materials there is um, my partner Paul O'Hare's article on uh, electronic databases and software regulation. Um, what we're really focusing about in these two areas is data architecture, the structure, shamers, strategies and methods of storing and using data, and particularly the IP rights in data, copyright, database right, confidence, patents, <coughs> trademarks, and, and contract. Um, and above that, um, we're looking at uh, information management uh, and then the sort of three areas of regulation in, relation, in relation to data. First, data protection um, of general application when it comes to personal data. Secondly, competition law. And thirdly, sector-specific regulation. Um, and, and this sort of gives the unified theme for today's um, session. Um, this session is on IP rights in data, um, the next session is on contracting for data. Um, then we've got, um, we're looking at, at, at competition law, which is getting much more important in the, in, in the area. Um, and then data, uh, data protection, and, and finally information management. So in a sense, IP is sort of what holds it together. It, it gives the framework. Um, in legal terms, data is pretty weird stuff. It's funny stuff. It's inert. Um, it's not like a good where you can provide that title and property uh, uh, and risk will pass. Um, it's not like electricity. It's not um, like a license. Um, the best way of looking at it, and I think it's a really helpful um, illustration 
just, just, just to showing how law and data work, you're not talking about rights in data so much as the various rights and duties and obligations that arise in relation to data. So there are these legal actors that we're familiar with that will apply themselves to this inert stuff data in, 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 in some way, shape, or form. Um, and, and the first of these, and probably the most obvious, is, is, is copyright. Now, copyright protects the expression of data, not the data itself. Um, and when we're looking at data specifically, we're looking at databases um, as a searchable collection of independent works. That's um, uh, 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 one of the judges' sort of shorthand for uh, the, 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 legal, the legal definition in the CDPA. Now, in, 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 in copyright terms, databases are expressly excluded from uh, literary work protection as a table or compilation um, and have been added as their own uh, specific uh, thing to the list of other literary works. Um, this, this used to be a bit of a problem until last year because, as you know, um, the originality standard in copyright is low. It's essentially that the copyright work, the work wasn't copied from anywhere else. Um, but in adding database as a new work in which copyright subsists, they've also changed the standard for originality. So copyright in databases as a literary work um, will arise only if, by reason of the selection or arrangement of the contents of the database, the database constitutes the author's own intellectual creation. And that own intellectual creation formula um, uh, is new to English law, and as Paul Garland will show, uh, 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 has been litigated in this Football Data Co. case, where briefly um, you identify the work that went into selecting or arranging the data in the database and assess whether it involved the author's judgment, taste, or discretion. And in this typical English judge throwaway remark, good, bad, or different, indifferent. I don't care whether the taste was any good or not, it's just that there was some taste applied. Um, I should probably say at, at this point that in the materials um, that you'll be getting that are on our website, we've gone into this in quite a lot more detail in, in our white paper on rights in data. So there are references here um, to, 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 to the white paper um, that, that, that takes this up. Uh, so sort of specifically for, for, for copyright, you're left with um, database copyright as, as this um, uh, 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 new specific right. But don't forget, when you're looking at copyright generally, um, you know, plain old literary work copyright, um, copying others' reports, copying others' stuff. Um, and Paul will be saying a bit about this when we get on to uh, uh, the, 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 case the case studies, the, the, the case law after this. Um, and software, as a lit software has literary work copyright protection, which is separate from that of the database. And all the documentation ancillary to the product, to the database, to the software itself has copyright protection. So you're looking at a number of layers of things uh, in relation to data in which copyright might arise. So copyright does what it says on the tin fundamentally. It stops copying. Um, since 1998, um, we've had this new uh, sui generis right called the database right. Um, which is a copyright type right. It's how it's been sort of pulled into English law. Um, but it's different. Um, and it subsists in a database, the same definition as for copyright, searchable collection of independent works. 
if there's been a substantial investment in obtaining, verifying, or presenting the contents of that database, OVPing the contents of the database. Um, and if it's infringed, if a person without the owner's consent extracts or reutilizes all or a substantial part of that database's contents, or does lots of little things, lots of little extractions, repeatedly. Before 2004 in the BHB case, um, we thought that this might be giving quite a significant, broad new right to databases. Um, but the, the BHB case, the British Horse Rating Board case, when it came down from the European Court of Justice, effectively eviscerated database right protection by making it harder to show that the right subsists. They said that the investment has to relate to collating existing independent materials, and if it was only relating to creating the materials for the database, it didn't count. And that's a particular problem in areas where the content and database creation is virtually contemporaneous, especially with real-time market data. And that case makes it difficult, more difficult to show um, that infringement has taken place. But again, database isn't completely without value. Um, and it's particularly relevant in the financial market data area <coughs> with security classification taxonomies, QSIPs, CDOLs, uh, RICs, etc., um, which uh, Rachel Eiley will be speaking about more of in the competition section. So copyright does what it says on the tin. Database right, not completely without use, but not of much use. Then confidence, and confidence emerges as a sort of dark horse because it can protect the substance, not just the form of the information. Copyright's a formal remedy, it protects copying. Confidentiality can protect the substance of the data. Um, the information needs to have the quality of confidentiality. In technology transfer block exemption regulation terms, secret, substantial, and identified. Um, but there's no bar to it applying to data in principle. Um, and then th there's a line of cases, um, going back to Albert and Strange in, in the 19th century, um, which says that where data is aggregated, um, even though parts of the data may be publicly available, confidence will attach to the data as aggregated. So where the structure of information in aggregated form isn't publicly available, the law of confidence will intervene, even if parts of the information are publicly available. So somewhat counterintuitively, confidence may be broader than you think in this area. I've mentioned trademarks. Um, because there are uh, as a growing line of cases which Paul will be looking at, mainly from the USA and Germany, um, from the index world in particular, um, which put limits around um, what someone can do using an index in the name of a futures options or ETF product. Um, there's a balance between uh, uh, protecting trade the trademark holder's interest in ensuring the guarantee of origin, the integrity of provenance, um, and allowing use in accordance with honest practice. Um, there aren't any cases on this yet in the UK, um, but there's now quite a developed uh, uh, line of cases from around the world. You can, uh, uh, it's easy to overestimate uh, the extent of trademark right protection um, uh, for in, in, in the data area. Um, because again, particularly in the market data area, people will need reliable sources of continuous information, particularly where it's real-time or near-real-time. Um, so therefore, they'll need a service contract um, to get the information, which is the way um, that, 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 that regulates uh, things. Just a quick word about patents. Um, again, patents don't apply. It's not a right in data, um, but patents 
um, can apply to inventions and processes that manipulate data particularly. Um, again, Paul will say a little bit about this in relation to the, um, the, 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 the recent cases. But essentially, um, the courts have reconciled the requirements of Section 1.1 of the Patent Act, which are that um, an invention is patentable in the UK if it's new, involves an inventive step, is capable of industrial application, and isn't excluded. And it's that isn't excluded that's given the courts a hard time over here. Because a scheme, rule, or method for doing business or a program for a computer are excluded. Um, and this reconciliation has come about and an, an, an invention in the software area will in principle be patentable if on the proper construction of the claim it makes a contribution to what's already known in the field that doesn't fall solely with this, within the section 1-2 exclusion and is technical in nature. So it's sort of technical and capable of, 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 of wider application. So having gone through very quickly all these rights that may arise in relation to data, um, where are we left with? Well, IP rights are rights in REM. They can be uh, uh, enforced against the whole world. You don't need a, a nexus other than the infringement. Um, but as we've seen, they've all got one or more specific problems, and they've all got their own sets of rules, and they're national in origin. So where you're dealing internationally, you can have different interpretations arise. Um, and because of these difficulties with IP rights, data is still an area where contract is king. Now, the drawback is that it only gives rights and imposes obligations on contracting parties, so rights in personam, not in rem against the whole world. Um, but there's a great dictum of Mr. Justice Efferton in At the Races, one of the follow-on cases from BHB, where he said um, the data supplier, in that case, has in the data a valuable commodity for which it's entitled to charge there's no authority to the contrary, including the BHB case. And he goes on to say, I don't really mind whether or not you have IP rights. If you hold a right, you still have something that you can charge for. And that then leads us on to um, a, 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 an analysis of license-type language in contracts, um, which I won't say much about now because in the next session we'll be focusing on, 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 on data contract, on, on contra contracting for data. Um, and it also brings in the issues about um, uh, competition law, um, which Rachel will be ad addressing. So that's just a very quick canter through um, the sort of backbone of the rights. IP rights, broader, but have limitations. So this is really an area where contract is king. So uh, 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 I'll now hand over to um, Paul, um, who will be sort of going through this as a case law refresher. Thanks, Richard, um, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, wave if you can't hear me, but I think the mic's working okay. Um, as Richard said, he's flagged up lots of the different issues, um, particularly in terms of the various IP rights that are an issue when you're looking at rights in relation to data. Um, I'm going to go another layer below and just flag up for you the main cases that are relevant for each of those issues. Um, not going into too much detail on them. Some of them will be familiar um, anyway, but also there's, a, there's an awful lot here. So hopefully we'll leave you with um, a good checklist of all the various cases that are, that are most relevant at the moment. Um, so starting off with, with, with what you know, plain old literary copyright, um, which you'll all be familiar with, um, even though here we're considering computerized data, this is a, a very important right that we don't, don't forget. I mean, this, this slide refers to a, 
a recent claim that's been brought by um, EIG against UBS. Um, they, EIG are alleging that UBS copied articles, including various data analysis pieces, um, from their oil and gas publications and reprinting them uh, in investment research that's been sent on, <coughs> on to clients. Um, UBS had a single user license for internal use, um, and uh, EIG is saying that's been breached and they're seeking damages for breach contract and, and uh, infringement. So that's fairly recent. Um, I'd be surprised if it goes all the way to trial, but um, let's see what happens. Um, and and uh, in the US, very similar, although perhaps slightly more extreme example, um, here, Leg Mason, a brokerage firm, received a single copy of, of Lowry's report, um, which relates to stock exchange, New York Stock Exchange trends and uh, analysis. They got that on a daily and, and, and weekly basis. Um, and Leg Mason decided to include numbers from those reports on all of their daily internal um, briefings. They regularly fax copies of the single report round to their various offices around the world. Um, they also put, put it on the firm's intranet, and the evidence in the trial showed that the, uh, the intranet version had been um, looked at something like 16,000 times. Um, so a pretty simple case for the judge and, and, and a clear copyright there, a clear copyright infringement. Um, and the defences that were put forward, which included things like it was all done by our employees and not by us, um, didn't, get, didn't get very far. Um, and a huge $20 million damages award, um, which was sort of calculated on a, an increasing basis once notification of the infringement was, was given. So literary copyright is still really important in the right circumstances. Um, database rights, <coughs> I mean, you, you'll have all been to many talks, no doubt, and read lots of things about BHB. I won't go back through it. Just to, just to recap on where we are, we've got a definition of database, um, and that subsists where qualitative qualitatively or quantitatively a substantial investment in either the obtaining, verification, or presentation of the contents has, has got carried on. So breaking those down on the obtaining, this it won't protect the invention in the creation of the database, as the creation of the data itself, rather, which is the key thing in, in BHB, obviously. Um, only going to protect it where resources are used to seek out existing independent material or in verifying the reliability of the data in the database, not at the time of creation. And then with databases, of the database right is obviously used as by way of infringement to prevent extraction and or reutilization of the whole or a substantial part. And that's evaluated qualitatively and or quantitatively of the contents of that database. So extraction reutilization seems to be uh, okay. We, we, that's been interpreted pretty broadly, including indirect access. The substantial parts also throws up some issues though. The quantitatively, where we are now, it seems to be that the, uh, the volume of extracted data is compared to the database as a whole to get a sense of what's quantitatively large. So that gives you a strange result that um, you have an advantage if it's a smaller database at the outset um, for that test. Qualitatively, where we're at is that it's referring to the scale of investment in the obtaining, verifying, or presentation of the, of the content. Um, and that's... Um, the problem with that is it has real, no real uh, regard to the, the economic value of the database itself. Um, it's all about the investment in obtaining. Um, so, oh, sorry, and the, 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 one, the one last part, the, the insubstantial part, um, obviously there's also infringement if there's cumulative 
uh, taking you in substantial part. And there you're really now looking for acts that conflict with the normal, the normal exploitation of the database or that are seen to be unfairly um, pre prejudicial or unreasonably prejudicial to the legitimate rights of the database owner. So basically the take home at the moment for BHB is that you can't rely on it. it might apply in certain circumstances, but um, its value is, is certainly considerably diminished. Um, database copyright. So that's database right we've done. This is, we're talking here about the copyright uh, specifically in database that's come up through the database directive. Um, and as Richard mentioned, we've now had a case in the UK which has looked at this in more, more detail. This concerned the football fixtures lists um, and looked in quite a lot of detail actually at how those are compiled, which is um, it's very interesting, but there's an awful lot of work in terms of making sure that uh, teams are obviously playing home and away and play each other, but also when, um, when they play each other and trying to get it all right. And that's pretty much done by a single guy who looks at it through it all and tries to, to rejig it and get it right. So an awful lot of work in, in getting, that, getting that together. Um, as is the theme with all things to do with data and, and, and infringement data, the court needed to go through all the various IP rights that may apply here. Um, looked at database rights, um, clearly didn't apply here for the same reasons as, as BHB. Um, wasn't a literary work because that excluded now something which is other than a database, or excluded databases, which this was. Um, the individual contents of the fixture list were uh, not literary work, so that didn't cover it. But they did find that there was database copyright um, and that had been infringed. So that's quite useful. Obviously gives us a bit more of information about what, what database copyright will actually um, cover. And here we're looking at, now under the new test, the author's own intellectual creation. So not standard copyright test of whether it's been copied or, right, copied or not. This, this higher test in order to, to get uh, copyright protection for the database. Um, what was nice here, though, was the court wasn't bound by all the um, considerations that are uh, there for database rights. Um, it, it was a much freer uh, situation to look at whether or not there was sufficient intellectual creation in coming together with, in, in putting together the database. Um, and that needed to involve judgment, taste, and discretion. So not just sweat of the brow stuff. Contrasting that with, say, putting together a telephone directory, which is just an automated process which has to follow certain rules already. Um, this would be quite different. There was a lot more um, analysis to be done and thinking to be done. Um, it's left us with some questions. It's not the end of the, end of the story. First of all, um, this is only UK. We haven't yet been to the ECJ. Um, there's also a, a still a question mark as to where the lines drawn between a table or compilation and a database, one of which may attract literary copyright and one of which wouldn't. Um, we're going to get more guidance, though, because as a result of that case, questions have been referred to the ECJ. I, I won't go through them, but, but um, they're set out there and on the slides. Um, looking at things like how much skill and effort do you actually need, does pre-selection of things like, uh, well, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the football instance of pre-selecting certain items of data for, for inclusion in the database matter and that sort of stuff. So we'll, uh, we'll see what comes out of that. Just briefly on the US equivalent situation, here you need, it's fairly, fairly, uh, fairly settled now and a feist that you need both independent creation and a minimum of creativity, a modicum of creativity in order for rights to arise in relation to, to a database. So um, 
again, sweat of the brow not being enough, you need something more than that. So perhaps not, not, not a huge difference to, um, to the UK, uh, European database copyright, um, but, but not the same as the database right. Just put a slide up about Navitea, and this was a case, I'm sure you all know about software, a software program which um, EasyJet asked Bulletproof to create for them to look and feel exactly the same as their existing uh, one they were getting from a company called Navitaire. So the system, the, 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 uh, the alleged infringing system, was uh, designed to replicate the exact look and feel of, of the old Navitaire system. There was no soft, uh, source code copying. Um, what's, uh, and obviously that, that there was a lot of things which, which, um, which were considered in that. From a, from a, a data point of view, what was crucial was, uh, was looking at the situation where EasyJet gave their new supplier access um, via a Citrix link to the old system and gave them a copy of the database. Um, now, they tried to argue um, that section uh, 50 of the CDPA gives them the right because a lawful database user can do anything necessary to access and use their database contents. So that should, they thought, should give them an escape um, on that point, and they were free to give it to their new supplier. Um, the key thing, though, was doing anything necessary and what the court said uh, in this situation was the way that they did it, giving them direct access, wasn't necessary. They could have done it um, through a neutral file format um, and, not, and not gone directly via the original um, system. So it was still an infringement. So a slight side, side issue, but still relating to the use and uh, transfer of data in that sense. So coming to trademarks, now, uh, Richard mentioned this, this has really arisen <coughs> principally in the index business. Um, there's no um, UK cases at the moment, but we've got a number from the US and, uh, and, and around Europe, well, Germany particularly, which are going to be very useful in terms of giving guidance. Um, the MSCI prospectus from 07 kind of summarizes the point here that there is an issue as to whether or not you need a license when you use certain uh, uh, third-party trademarks. What's, what's, um, this comes uh, on the back of of a much greater focus generally in trademark law on the use of identical trademarks. In the old days, we used to always be looking at whether someone's got a bit close to a trademark, whether it's confusingly similar. Because of all of the uh, digitization of content, there's much more direct taking of content and using of, of identical trademarks. So the focus here is all about whether or not you can escape any infringement allegations by descriptive use. You're saying all I'm doing is describing the content by reference to the trademark owner, or whether that's going too far and you're taking something uh, that you shouldn't. This is a hopefully helpful list of the US cases that have run um, from the 80s onwards relating to the, uh, to, to the issue in relation to indexes um, in the US. Um, I won't go through them all, but just to summarize, where we are um, in the US is if you have either futures based on an index or options based on an index, which use the original index trademark, you're likely, as the index trademark owner, to be able to stop that either under uh, trademark uh, infringement or misappropriation of IP um, issues. In contrast, on the secondary trading, um, if you're putting out options based on, on equity stock or further trading on ETFs um, on other markets, um, that is unlikely to be something that, as the original trademark owner, you're going to be able to stop in the, in the US. So it's, it's developing um, a system where once you've put your product out there in the market and it's now being used 
by the public in other ways, um, secondary trading, et cetera, you're unlikely to be able to reach through and stop the, the, uh, the infringers from using the mark in that sense. Um, the last one is, is, is a, um, options based on, on ETFs. And again, that was held um, that the ETFs were not infringing the, the index's trademarks um, that they were based on. So a bit close to home, this, this case that was in, in Germany um, 2009 was based on the, um, the European Trademark Directive, so it has much more uh, relevance in terms of looking at how this would be decided in, in the UK. Here, um, it concerned Commerce Bank's uh, use of a couple of Deutsche Börse's trademarks um, following termination of their license agreement with Deutsche Börse, um, principally because the fees were going up, so they decided not to take another license. Um, again, this was use of identical trademarks to those owned by um, Deutsche Börse. So for, for, the, um, for the trademark director's point of view, what was key was whether or not that use you're allowed to do to use in a descriptive sense, provided it's in accordance with honest um, practices in industrial and commercial matters. So that was the key thing, was whether or not this was in accordance with honest use. Um, uh, Commerce Bank used, used the marks in two ways. The first, they used the DAX mark, and, and they've put up on the slide um, saying related to DAX, so they were tracking the, the, the index, and actually stated that DAX was a registered trademark of, of, of Deutsche Börse. And the German court said that that was fine, there was no infringement, it didn't go too far, it didn't give the impression that, the, uh, that there was a connection between the parties uh, in, in that sense. The second use, though, was of, of another mark, DivDAX, um, and uh, there they issued options um, described as unlimited DivDAX index certificates. And the court there felt that that was going too far. Um, what they called it offends against common decency, translated into English trademark law would be not in accordance with honest practices. This is, this is going too far. You're starting to misappropriate the, uh, the rights of the, of the trademark owner. Um, so really where we're left at is <coughs> descriptive use is fine. Things that go further than that and start to take advantage of the, of the actual um, trademark owner's rights or reputation, et cetera, um, I like to go too far. So just to touch on patents, uh, you know, this, this isn't um, a right. Uh, you're not going to get a patent in relation to data itself. Um, but obviously, there's an increasing number of patents which relate to the processing, manipulation, control, distribution of, of data. Those patents almost always will be either software or business methods patents, and then so you're straight up to uh, against the issues that relate to whether or not you can or can't get patents for those sort of things. Big difference between UK and the US, UK and EPO, slight differences. Um, recent guidance, and now where we are in the UK, follows the uh, Macrosan and, and Aerotel cases of the 2006. Um, I've set out the, the, the test there, and that was um, looked at again by, in a case involving Symbian in 2008, um, really still focusing on whether or not there's a technical contribution to the art by the patent that's over and above the fact that this thing is a software program. Um, so it's not enough that it's quicker because it's a software program. It has to have a, a genuine technical impact to, to the art. Um, there is a difference between the, U European, the, sorry, the UK test and that before the European Patent Office. Um, most of the time it should, should res result in the same um, decision as to whether or not it's patentable. It's probably slightly easier to get software patents through the EPO still. 
Um, the, the, the test being followed still comes from a, a Hitachi patent application. Um, again, focusing on whether there's a technical solution. Unfortunately, there was a reference from the EPO to the Board of Appeal um, to look at the uh, existing case law on this and answer some questions and hopefully get to a more harmonized situation. That was actually rejected last year on the basis that things were clear as far as they were concerned. So still some uncertainty there. But um, difficult to get software patents in, in Europe, certainly not impossible, just a question of how you draft them, how you word them, and how your patent agents argue it through the process. Um, contrast that with the US, where there's no general exclusion of, of computer programs or business methods. All, it's all about whether there's a useful, concrete, and tangible result coming from the invention. Um, looked at again very recently in Bilski uh, last year, and um, that's where we are, where they rejected there this pure method of, of hedging commodity transactions. They said that was too, too vague. It needed to be pinned down into something that was uh, either uh, based or worked on a machine or had some sort of uh, mechanical transformation um, uh, over and above just the, just the, the basic concept. Um, it's still, um, because that decision of Bilski had a lot of, uh, had a few judges giving different, slightly different um, views, there is still some uncertainty in the US precisely what's necessary and there is some thought that actually some of the ex recently granted US patents may not now be valid because of this. Um, but certainly much more, much easier to get US patents for software business methods than it is um, in Europe. Um, as for other countries, Japan, Canada, et cetera, probably somewhere in between technical um, solution being the key, but um, somewhere along the spectrum. So that's um, a bit, another layer sort of below what, what Richard covered. Um, here's just some conclusions that we've, we've put together. Um, there are a lot of IPR issues here. They all overlap. Um, and they're blurred and there's some uncertainty. So um, when you get to a situation where you're trying to, thinking about either stopping someone or um, the flip side, arguing that you're not doing anything wrong, it's, it's going to be essential to, to look at the whole arsenal, um, go through each one by one. Um, for rights owners, you are going to be in for an argument if it's not clearly within one or the other. Um, and as an alleged infringer, you're going to try and tiptoe through the different different solutions, which is why we come back to contract being king. If the contract does cover all these issues clearly um, and is enforceable, then that hopefully will sidestep the, the much more complicated issues as to whether or not the IP rights are, are infringement, are, are enforceable or not. Okay. Uh, great. I'm going to hand over to Catherine. Good afternoon. So we've heard about the rights that exist. How do we look at these in practice? Um, the next few minutes, I'm just going to spend some time um, explaining to you how we in Thomson Reuters um, look at these data rights issues. Um, for those of you that don't know the Thomson Reuters business, it's very much based on content that we develop ourselves or we license it from third parties. We then develop a suite of products um, that cover pretty much the whole, all the sectors in the financial markets. Um, and the type of, of data we're talking about is um, data that's used for trading and investment decisions. It's data that comes through from the global exchanges, real-time data and delayed data. It's information that comes through from our clients who want to advertise their positions in the market, company data, 
um, and a historical view on the markets as well. Um, and obviously, with all these rights and how we commercialise them, it's very important to our business in terms of how we manage things. Um, a lot um, of work goes into um, improving the value and adding value to the products that we develop and making them useful for our clients. Uh, for example, um, we cleanse the data, we quality check it, uh, we standardise it, tag it, it goes into graphs, um, it's combined with other data to form new data points, and the layout of the, the services has changed. Um, so all of this kind of combines together to create the compelling product that we, that we sell. Um, and the business model is such that we are licensing our clients' rights to do certain things with the content. Um, so our agreements tend to be quite specific on what can and can't be done with, with, the, um, with the data. Um, so the contractor's king argument certainly holds true, and that, that's really from kind of full-blown terms and conditions with our subscription-based products, our high-tier products for traders, through to click-through agreements when there's products being downloaded off the internet, through to disclaimers and online terms and conditions. We generally rely on the contractual rights that are set out, and the IP position in reality only becomes an issue if there's a dispute that, that, needs, to be, that needs to be managed. So, as I've been indicating, there's a vast amount of data that goes into, into our services and rights that need to be managed um, out of that. We carry a large proportion of information that comes from third parties, and I'm going to touch on that in the, in the next slide. Um, but essentially, either that gets kind of white-labeled um, and is used within, within the product, or else it gets separately branded um, as the supplier content. And that very much depends on um, what the needs for the data are, the, the value of the, of the supplier as to whether that happens or not. Um, we, have a fairly, we have a fairly significant um, photographs business. So apart from the obvious issues around kind of personality and image rights. Um, there's some other interesting issues that come out of, of photographs in terms of rights. Um, copyright, there can be copyright in some modern buildings and lighting design um, that you need to take that you need to take care of. Um, and also we found um, significant use of thumbnail reproductions of our, um, of our photographs that get used on the net. And there's some interesting issues around whether the photographs can be used and whether that is actually an infringement or not. Um, and then a very basic issue in terms of legal, legal theory, but in practice it's very difficult, is who's actually taking these photographs? Because um, our journalists are out across the world and a lot of the time we get stringers in or um, consultants to take, um, to take the photographs and we don't always manage to get contracts put in place for that. So, you know, it's a very simple issue legally but it can create issues in practice. Um, we have a large editorial function that produce copy every day around the world and I think um, literary copyright is obviously something that, that applies there but tricky issues come out of that when headlines um, and the very uh, front of a story get, get reproduced. Um, 
depending on where you are in the world, which jurisdiction you're in, um, is there copyright in those headlines or not? And those, those tend to be very valuable in terms of breaking news um, for our clients in, in, the, financial, in the financial markets. Um, in terms of the financial data, in the financial market data itself, um, the rights issues that come out of that relate a lot to the look and feel and the layout of the services because that's something we um, is quite bespoke to us. Also, whether there are any rights in derived data, is it truly derived data? Um, can the underlying content that's been used for derived data be reverse engineered? So there are a lot of issues that, that come out of that. Also, our taxonomy, the coding system that I'm going to talk a little bit about as well, there are rights, um, rights issues with that. Um, and then with individual data points, which, um, so for example, an economic indicator that's really important to the market, it's only one, one piece of, of data. If that gets reused, it's very unlikely you'd get copyright protection. And depending on how how that was displayed, you know whether you can rely on database rights or not is is debatable. So that's very frustrating in terms of having to to manage that if it does get misused. Um, Thomson Reuters is in the middle of the supply chain, really, in terms of of licensing data, and because of that, we need to balance the rights of our um, content providers who are obviously looking to, to maximise the value um, of their content against the business needs um, of our clients who are wanting to use as much as possible and also against our own kind of business model in terms of licensing content. So those relationships, there tends to be quite a lot of focus on the licensing around that um, and the agreements tend to be quite complex in terms of the, the licensing structure. Um, and I can see a couple of familiar faces here in terms of um, counterparties in, in negotiations, so I'm going to have to be a little bit careful about, about what I say here. But um, the, the scope of the license is obviously very important um, for Thomson Reuters as a business to make sure um, that we can do everything we need to do um, in terms of is it an internal license, can we only use it for development purposes, can we redistribute it to clients, can clients redistribute it, um, and if so, are there any restrictions on that? Which of our companies can use it? Um, can it be used across the group or is it only specific to a certain product? Um, is the license exclusive or non-exclusive? And then depending on, on the supply and depending on the value of the content, do they want to restrict our ability to create derived data? Um, a lot of the time we want to kind of commingle the content to create a comparison um, with other suppliers. Our clients find that very useful and there are often discussions around that. Um, we'd also want to see um, provisions around who owns any goodwill that comes out of the inclusion of the content within our services. Um, we certainly want to see some kind of declaration from the supplier that they have the necessary rights or they're the owner um, of the content. Another key provision, and it's actually driven very much by our technical constraints, is um, what happens to the rights that we've already licensed and paid for 
um, on termination of the contract, do these, it, I don't think it necessarily follows that those fall away, um, but you definitely want to, to have some kind of um, clarification on, on that. Um, and I think most importantly, um, because of this whole supply chain in terms of the, the content, we want to make sure that whatever we license in has a back-to-back arrangement, well, what, whatever we license our clients has a back-to-back -back, um, arrangement with, with our suppliers. So, for example, the definition of derived data t tends to be very similar for our client agreements as it is um, in our supply agreements. So we always sure that we have the necessary rights um, in place to license on. Um, and obviously, with the large number of suppliers that we have, um, we need a global team to actually manage this. And we have a team across the globe who look at managing a compliance program um, to ensure that we can comply with these relevant restrictions um, and managing the audits that we need to, to have. I wanted to speak very briefly on um, taxonomies and coding. And for those of you that aren't in the financial markets, um, these are codes that are used to kind of navigate and structure content, um, and it enables our clients to find an individual piece of data um, through the use of the code. And this is, this is incredibly useful um, with the vast amount of financial data that's out there um, at the moment. And, um, you know, we've heard earlier around the potential limitations of, of the database rights, um, but we feel the database directive as a whole um, gives us some good options in terms of how we protect these, these coding systems, both on the, the kind of investment that gets put into the compilation of the coding structure in terms of matching client expectations and the technical constraints of managing this huge coding structure, um, the resource required for that tends to be quite extensive. Um, and then also on the kind of intellectual creation side, um, it takes quite a lot of human capital to work out how the code can be intuitive, um, how there's no confusion between different financial instruments, um, there are global issues and local issues that need to be weighed up. So there's, there's actually a lot of um, discretion that's used in the creation of, of these codes. And I think certainly in database copyright um, will provide, looks to provide good protection for that. And that's certainly the position that, that we take on that. Um, and then that brings us to infringement. It's all very well having these rights, but I think um, in practice, it takes a significant amount of commitment um, and resource to, to enforce them. So, you know, how do we manage this in practice? I think it's very much um, a business decision that that's get ta gets taken with consultation with the legal department. We look at um, how severe the infringement is, um, how valuable the content is, does it affect our reputation as an organization, um, is it repeated use? So, for example, I think um, on the editorial side, if we found a fake Reuters news story, we'd certainly um, want to take action around that. Is there any kind of allegation of affiliation with the company that's damaging? Or is it just a once-off incident um, on a website with stale data? 
Um, so, so those are those are issues that we we kind of weigh up. We also need to look at actually, is it our data? Is it third-party data? Is it something that we license exclusively? Can we actually take any action? And obviously, we also look at the evidence. You know, is there repeated use? Is it anecdotal evidence? Um, so, a couple of issues that really need that really need to be weighed up. And then, if the business decide that's something that they don't want to pursue. Obviously, they need to be aware that they, you know, if they change their mind at a later date, um, may be difficult for them to to enforce their rights. Um, so there tends to be a broad discussion around that. Um, so just just in conclusion, it's certainly enough to keep the legal department on its toes um, in in this area.